Welcome. It's exciting. It's been a wonderful day already. And before we get started with our message, let me just say a couple of things. Last week, I talked very briefly about the trip that I took and, in Albania and some of the neat opportunities. Um, let me just say this, that even since last week, I just found out that the church, which is exploding, breaking at the seams, I mean, they're doing great, standing room only, um, has decided to begin services in a neighborhood on the edge of town in a very impoverished area where a lot of people have been saved. And so they're beginning to branch out, and a group of leaders from the church in Tirana are, are beginning uh, evening services in this neighborhood on the edge of town. That's a huge step. That's, that's the beginning of starting new works, and, and that's, that's an exciting, exciting thing. So be praying for that church and those opportunities to uh, maybe begin something brand new. And then um, during my trip also, I had the privilege to visit the country of Turkey briefly. And let me just tell you, there are opportunities to get the gospel into Turkey. And you might think about the difficulty and the persecution that exist in a country like that, but um, let me just tell you, it is still officially a secular society, and the doors are wide open, and there are great, great opportunities to be had if people will just step up and do it and make their life a part of that life and uh, care enough to witness to those people. And so uh, be praying about opportunities and for the Lord just helping to get the gospel to move in that country. It is the largest unevangelized nation on the face of this earth, and I believe that it is the key gateway to go deeper into the Eastern culture and the Eastern worlds. And so um, just pray with us about that, and uh, we'll see what the Lord will do, and, and that's kind of a cool thing as well. I do want to just give a quick shout out as well, because we do have Deb Fox here with us. Deb, are you back in this direction? Where are you at, Deb? I don't see her. Stand up, stand up. I know you hate it. You hate it, I know. For those of you that may not know, uh, Deb is our missionary. She serves in Prague in the Czech Republic and has been doing that for like six years or more now. So uh, she's back for a couple of weeks. And so if you get a chance to go and say hi to her, go ahead and go ahead and do that. Okay, take your Bibles and uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 15. We're continuing in our study. And as it happens to be Memorial Day weekend, and as so aptly we were reminded of the ultimate sacrifice that men and women throughout history have given their lives so that we can enjoy the freedoms that we enjoy, that men and women have decided of their own free will that they would take on a job description, that they would fight for a cause, that that cause would be greater than their own selves. And if it costs them the ultimate sacrifice, that they willingly signed up to do that. And it's right that we honor them. Amen? It's right that we remember, and it's right that we honor them. Well, it's not wrong also for us today to talk about the same idea. If you were with us last week, we talked about how we need to live for a purpose that is greater than ourselves. And we're going to continue that thought into this week. In fact, one of the verses that was on the screen during our worship time, Romans chapter 12 and verse number 1, how we are to give our bodies a living sacrifice. 
and that God requires that. He desires for us to lay it all on the line, that we would live our lives for a cause, for a purpose that is greater than ourselves. In this passage of Scripture, in the middle of Romans chapter 15, it has a heavy missions emphasis. That's where we're at. And in this emphasis, it's interesting because at the end of last week, we talked about the ministry of the Apostle Paul in verse number 16, and we're going to start up in verse 17. And the Bible refers to the Apostle Paul as the, the, the apostle whom we are supposed to follow, whom we are supposed to emulate. If there's a ministry that we should follow, it's the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Of course we follow the Lord Jesus, but as far as human beings that have been saved by grace through faith, the Apostle Paul represents for us that ministry. And what we will see today is the continuation of that thought from verses 17 to 24, which I'm calling the pattern for New Testament ministry. What does it really mean to follow the example of the Apostle Paul? We're going to see that today. And the context really is global missions. Please never forget that God left us only one job to do as born-again Christians in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's commonly referred to as the Great Commission. In fact, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 1 says very clearly that that is called our vocation. And the Bible says that we are to walk worthy of that vocation, that job that God has given us to do to reach the world, to make disciples of Jesus Christ throughout the world is our job. So I have a question for us to consider as we look at this passage of Scripture today, and it's in your notes. It says, if God gave us a job to do, do you think that he expects that we get it done? And of course, you're in church. You would say, well, yes, of course. But I want each of you to seriously and individually consider the ramifications of the answer to that question. If God gave us, the church, a job, and one job, to do, get the gospel to the entire world. Do you think he was kidding? Do you think he meant for other people but not us? Do you think he meant just for a special subset of Christians that got an extra Christian chromosome and they can live a higher level than most of us? Do you think that? Because a lot of people live like they think that. Does he really expect that we get it done or was he just kind of kidding? Well, The ministry of the Apostle Paul models for us how we can get that job done. And so that is the title, like I said, the pattern for New Testament ministry. Now, I understand that each of us has a different role to play, and there is a big picture at stake, but the big picture is the same for each and every one of us. And this message is going to hit each and every one of you just a little bit differently, and that's fine. But there are two primary applications, and arguably only two applications, that we can draw from this focus, and they're these. I personally have been praying, not just this week, this is a a regular prayer of my heart and my life, for some of you to really get it, to really get God's call and purpose and focus for our lives and surrender your lives. Some of you, I am praying God will move on your heart to totally and completely surrender all of your life's desires for the purpose of being a pioneering, cross-cultural, church-planting missionary of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I mean, that's the heartbeat that I have. That's the heartbeat that God has. That is a critical portion of what we must do. We will see that in the text today. And I am praying that some of you will say, here am I, Lord, send me. But most certainly not everybody will do that. Most certainly many of us, in fact, don't need to do that. So the others, however, are not exempt from equal sacrifice to see that the big picture, the one job that we were left, this vocation that we must walk worthy of, all of us are responsible for this same vocation. So if you are not going to be one to surrender to go and to do that, then with the equal sacrifice, surrender to support and send those who do. That's critically important because we're all one big family. We're all in this together and we have all received this command. So follow with me. I'm going to start in verse number 17. We're going to go down to verse number 24 of Romans 15. I have, therefore, whereof I may glory through Jesus Christ in those things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ hath not wrought by me to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed, through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about unto Illyricum I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not spoken of, they shall see, and they that have not heard shall understand. For which cause also I have been much hindered from coming to you. But now having no more place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come unto you, whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you, for I trust to see you in my journey and to be brought on my way thitherward by you, if first I be somewhat filled with your company. With this passage of Scripture, I want to begin right away with the first point in your notes, and that's this, the dedication of the ministry. And we're going to look at verses 17, 18, and 19. It begins by saying, I have whereof I may glory through Jesus Christ in those things which pertain to God. I may glory. That phrase, I may glory, it's not the exact same word glory that is used in other places like the glory of God being manifest in the heavens. This word glory is also translated in other places to, as the word boast or rejoice. Paul is kind of saying, I'm kind of proud of what's going on here. And you say, well, isn't that a negative thing? Well, use the word rejoice. I'm I'm pretty excited about what God's doing here. That's literally what he's saying. He's saying that I am so excited about the work of the ministry, the work of the ministry in those things which pertain unto God. So we see in these verses three things that Paul rejoices in. And the first and most obvious one is in Christ. Paul rejoices in Jesus Christ. Verse 18, he says, I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ hath not wrought. So he goes into this sentence and he says it in a unique way. He uses a double negative, okay? So in math and in English, a double negative becomes a positive, right? And so if you have the double negative, I will not dare to speak of things Christ hath not wrought, is equivalent to saying, I will only speak of the things Christ has wrought. 
right? That's what he's saying. And so he's really, listen, he's excited. He's, he's not proud. He's not puffed up. He's, this, is, this is a fairly obvious distinction, but I want to make this obvious distinction because we're going to roll into the second point. And the second point is, is that not only is he rejoicing in Christ, he's rejoicing in personal ministry. In personal ministry. Because the sentence goes on and he says, I will not dare to speak of those things which Christ hath not wrought by me. And so when you think about the, the glory, the boasting, the pride maybe, how about rejoicing? He's rejoicing in what Christ has done. He's not, rejoice, he's not rejoicing that, man, I am so cool. Man, God, I mean, when he got me, I mean, he won the lotto. He's not saying that. Paul is saying, look, I'm excited for what Christ is doing, and I'm excited that he's choosing to do it through me, that I get to be a part of his great plan. He's not puffed up with pride. He's excited that God would choose to use him. Remember that Christ, he's, I'm not doing this thing. Christ is doing it. But I'm excited that in my personal ministry, there's visible fruit that remains. It says that the Gentiles would be obedient by word and deed. You see, they're not just saying that they agree with Paul, the former Pharisee who split synagogues in half and began local churches throughout Asia Minor. They are literally living it out. They are obedient not just in word, but in deed. And Paul's like, I am so excited to see that Christ is doing a mighty work, an eternal work, and he's using me to do it. So that leads us to a very obvious application question. And that's this. Do you have visible fruit that remains as a result of your personal ministry? You know, Paul said that he wouldn't dare even talk about the ministries of others. The thing that Paul said, the only thing that I'm going to talk about are the things that God has done and the things that God has done by me. What if we did that? What if all we talked about in a ministry context was the things that God chose to do in and through my personal ministry? If each of us made that application, well, I think there'd be a lot less talking. <laughs> right? There'd be a lot less talking going on. I mean, really, friends, think about it. Just personally, nobody's asking you to fill out a survey, just in your own heart. You owe it to yourself to ask these questions. When's the last time I led somebody to the Lord? Where are my personal disciples that are continuing to be obedient in word and deed? Where are they? Could I, if I had the money, could I travel to their house and give them a hug because I know who they are and I know where they are and they are serving God faithfully and it is what I glory in because I glory that Christ did that by me, by me. This is not selfish. It's just focused. But you know what people do frequently? A lot of Christian people who don't have any personal fruit, a lot of Christian people are what I call CNN reporters. 
like a news reporter during a wartime. They, they like to be near the action. They like to wear the helmet and sit behind a bunker and have a microphone and talk about what all the soldiers are doing. But they don't really get in and fight. They don't really sacrifice anything. They just talk about the stories of all the other people that are doing things. And maybe your stories of ministry are just associated with, I go to this cool church and the church does a lot of neat stuff. Well, I mean, that's good. Are you contributing to the neat stuff? Maybe you say, I knew a guy and this guy did this awesome ministry and you can tell his story like it's your own. But it's not your own. It's his or it's hers. Do you have personal ministry? See, that's a problem in Christianity today. The problem is is that people frequently find their value in relative terms. We compare ourselves among ourselves, and the Bible says we shouldn't do that. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse number 12, Paul said this, For we dare not, there's that phrase again, make ourselves of the number, and you'll see the parallels to the passage we just read here. We dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend or approve themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, they're not wise. But we will not boast. See, Paul's not boasting. He's not prideful. He's just rejoicing in what Christ has done. We will not boast of things without our measure. What does that mean? We'll see in a second. But according to the measure of the rule which God hath distributed to us, a measure to reach even unto you, the Corinthians. For we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure as though we reached not unto you. For we are come as far as to you also and preaching the gospel of Christ. Notice, not boasting of things without our measure, that is of other men's labors, but having hope when your faith is increased that we shall be enlarged by you according to our rule abundantly to preach the gospel in regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's line of things made ready to our hand. But he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. For not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. So in this passage as well, you see that Paul is rejoicing in his personal ministry. He says, we are the ones who came to you, Corinthians. We preach the gospel to you. You are here loving the Lord because God chose to use us to do that. We're not boasting about things that other people have done and have set it up in, right in front of us as though we enjoy the fruit of their labors. That's not, our, that's not our deal with you. He rejoices in his personal ministry. He rejoices in Christ. Let him that glorieth glory in the Lord. So you rejoice in Christ, you rejoice in personal ministry, and thirdly, you rejoice in the gospel, of course. Verse 19 ends with, and I have fully preached the gospel of Christ, of course, because the power of Christ is of Christ, but it's also in the message of the gospel, right? Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God unto salvation unto everyone that believeth. It's the, power of the, it's the power of the gospel. Verse 19 starts with this. Through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. Well, okay, we're going to have to clarify this mighty signs and wonders thing 
a little bit. First off, signs and wonders, according to the scriptures, our authority for all things in life, signs and wonders were given exclusively to the apostles. And we see that from the very beginning in Acts chapter 2 and verse 43. Fear come upon, came upon every soul, and what happened? Many wonders and signs were done by everybody who believed. No, they were done by the apostles. Acts 5, verse 12. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. I'm become a fool in glorying. Ye have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended of you, for in nothing am I behind the very chiefest apostles, though I be nothing. Paul is kind of defending his apostleship among people who are casting doubt that he's really qualified as an apostle. And so to confirm his true apostleship, he says in verse 12, truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So this whole idea of the power of the Holy Spirit manifest through miracles and signs and wonders was something that was exclusively given to the apostles. Therefore, we know that these signs are not normative for all Christians of all times. I mean, the Bible's very clear about this. You can read historically throughout the accounts of the Scripture. There's only been three times, right, in the history of man that there's been these multiplied miracles that are ever going to be that way. And so you have, originally, you have in the time of Moses and all of those miracles, and then you have it around the time of Elijah, <coughs> excuse me, and Elisha, and all of those miracles. And then you have the time of Jesus Christ and the apostles. But all the times in between those times, there's no multiplied signs and wonders and miracles going on. And after the apostles are gone, you shouldn't expect them to, these things to be normal for everybody until the very last days when they will be falsified. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 Verse number seven, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work. What is that? We'll see in just a second. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that capital W wicked be revealed. Who's that? Well, it's somebody whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan. We're talking about the Antichrist. And his coming is after the working of Satan. How? With all power and signs and lying wonders. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. So in the very last days before it all comes to an end and Jesus Christ returns in glory to set up his thousand-year kingdom, there is going to be this outbreak of signs and wonders, but they are going to be lying signs and wonders manifested by a supernatural being, manifested by a spirit that is not holy. You should be careful about that. The book of Revelation, chapter number two, begins a discourse where Jesus Christ writes to seven churches, the first of which is Ephesus. <coughs> Notice this, it says, under the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars. 
They're praised for this trait. The church in Ephesus is praised for the fact that as they stand firm on the truth, they are finding people who say that they're apostles. In other words, they are manifesting what are the signs? How do you pretend you're an apostle? Well, part of it might be trying to manifest signs and miracles and wonders. And they say, wait a minute, you're not an apostle. You're a liar. And Jesus said, good job. Good job. So you need to understand what the signs were all about because Paul is a part of that. He was an apostle. He existed in the first century where it's very clear that signs were given for the purpose of confirming the word preached. The end of the Gospel of Mark, chapter number 16. The Great Commission, according to Mark, is in verse 15. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. I just selected a couple of verses. You should read all of them. But verse 17 says, And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues. You can continue to read 18 and 19, but verse 20 gives us the purpose that says they went forth. Who are the they? They are the disciples. They are the ones who are the apostles. Went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. So now that we have the completion of the Bible, now that we have the full canon of the Scripture, there is no need whatsoever for anybody to have miraculous signs and mighty deeds and wonders, wonders to confirm if what somebody's saying is true. You have a Bible. Just open it up and compare and see if what we are saying is true. If what we are saying is true, then rejoice in it. Live your life according to it. And if it is not true, then forget us, man, and go with the Bible, right? That's what it's all about. That's what you should do. So there's no need for signs. There's no need for wonders. So that was something exclusive and specific to Paul's context in the first century. That is not something that should be repeated. Why? Because the Bible's clear that it shouldn't be. Go back to Romans, verse 19. So that from Jerusalem and round about unto Illyricum. So Paul had a personal ministry. It started from Jerusalem and it began to branch out. And he branched out up to this point in his life in a place called Illyricum. That would be the westernmost point that Paul had taken the gospel up to that point of his life. Now he's writing to the Romans. He eventually gets there. He talks about how he intends to go all the way to Spain. But up to this point, he made it to Illyricum. Now if you were to look on a map, Illyricum happens to be what the Bible also calls Dalmatia. It is the eastern seaboard of the Adriatic Sea, which is the former Yugoslavia coming down into the country of Albania. That's where it happens to be. And Paul says that I preached the gospel from Jerusalem and continuing outward. Why did he do that? Because he was obeying the Great Commission found in Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8. But you shall receive power. How is that power going to be manifest? Well, let's see. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So the real mission of the church in its continuing focus and its continuing application is not to manifest the power of the Holy Spirit and mighty signs and wonders and miracles. 
It's to manifest the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives by being witnesses unto him from Jerusalem unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Can somebody say amen? amen? Come on. Listen, guys, seriously, if you can't get a hold of this today, it's Memorial Day. You're missing the big picture. You're forgetting why they give their lives. The Christian context. If you can't get emotional about this, if, if this, do, as they say, if this doesn't fire you up, your wood's wet. <laughs> There's something wrong with you. From Jerusalem, roundabout unto Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. It's all about the gospel. It's always about the gospel. It's always about getting the saving power of the gospel before people so that they can make a decision. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, again, very parallel passage, verses 18 to 24. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. Okay, Rich shared with the high school seniors, be careful of philosophy and vain deceit. And you're going out into a world that has its version of wisdom that God says is foolishness. And God says that he's going to put to foolishness the wisdom of this world. Because it goes on and it says, for after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom, all their efforts, that didn't get them saved, did it? They knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching, we could add the gospel, to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, not the Gentile church. The Greeks seek after wisdom. But we, the church of Jesus Christ, preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So you too can rejoice like Paul when God uses you to see lives changed for eternity. This first point of your message really is what I will call the what of the ministry. What is that? Well, it's personal gospel ministry in the power of Christ. What is the what in this context of what we're talking about? It's about having personal ministry in the power of Christ and it's ministry of the gospel. The second point, the destination of the ministry, verses 20 and 21. Yea, so have I pr- I've strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named. We need to know that we need to each per- personally participate, right? But Paul, in this section, clarifies where to participate. What should be our target destination for the ministry of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, he doesn't tell us where, but he tells us where not. He says not where Christ was named. He says not 
on another man's foundation. Well, we understand that Paul's specific role clearly was that of a pioneer church-planting missionary. No question about it. That was his specific role. Can I tell you, without some men doing this type of the ministry, the Great Commission will never be fulfilled. Would you agree? Would you not agree that if some men and women don't fully surrender their lives and lay it out as a living sacrifice and leave their homes and leave their families and leave their comforts and leave their salaries and go to other places around the world and potentially give their lives, whether physically or not, so that other people that they don't even know can possibly know him and stand one day before the Lord in glory in eternity, if, people, if there are not some that do that, we will never accomplish the Great Commission. Would you say amen to that? Amen. So should we not honor them as well? Should we not be thankful for them as well? Amen. Come on. Yeah. I pray every single day that God will call men and women out of First Baptist Church to leave and be pioneering, church-planting missionaries in new areas where Christ is not currently named, where nobody has an established foundation. I pray that'll happen. Listen, generally speaking, that job, it's a young man's job. It's for you guys. And you guys. You flank me, so it's hard, okay? The younger, I mean, no, there's younger people in the middle too, but generally they're sitting over here. It, it, it's, it's you all that have your entire lives in front of you. What are you going to live for? What are you going to live for? That's what he wants to know. That's what our life is all about. I pray that that will be you. For those of you that are a little bit older and you've got kids that are growing up, that might be your kids. That might be your grandkids. How does that hit you, Grandma? I mean, how's that hit you, really? You love God, you say amen, praise God for those people until it's my grandkid or my kid who takes my grandkids to go live in some country I will never dare go to because it's scary. Would you rejoice in that? Would that be maybe your sacrifice to love them and support them and pray for them and give to them and help them get the gospel around the world? Do you, does Jesus mean that much to you? Listen, don't misunderstand me. Certainly not everyone will do that. In fact, let me put your minds at ease in case you're getting a little nervous. It's not required of everyone. Very clearly, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 10, the same apostle also said this. According to the grace of God which is given to me, God gave Paul special grace for a reason. To do what? As a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation And what do the other people do? Well, others build upon it. (laughs) So you clearly see the Holy Spirit is saying there will be some who will be the foundational laying, pioneering missionaries into new areas, which is critically required. But others will come along and build on that. That's okay too. But somebody's got to be the guy who will go or the job will never get done. By the way, didn't we start with the question, do you think God expects that we actually get the job done? I do. So therefore, we who don't go 
must partner with those that do. We must. God is not requiring less of any of us. Some have a specific calling and a specific grace to go and do new things. Others do not. So if you do not have the specific calling and the specific grace, then you are duty-bound to see to it that those who do have that can get where they need to get. Do you see that? That's why we talk about this so much. This is the mission. Do you realize that most people, most, look, most, most of us build on somebody else's foundation, right? I mean, most of us do. Look around. We're in the United States of America. Where is there a place where Christ has not been named? Really? Where is there a place where somebody does not have some gospel preaching church already existing? So that's fine. Get involved in a ministry and build on that ministry. I'm not saying that's wrong, but here's an interesting thing. Because what happens in last days Laodicean American Christianity is people are all about starting new churches. And they go across town and they start a church two miles down the road and all it is is a group of people who were mad at the church they were at. And they're carnal, man. They're carnal. And because they're mad at the leadership and they, won't, they don't like what's being preached, they don't want to be held accountable to anything, they won't submit to the authority that God put in their lives, they get ticked off and they get a bunch of their friends with them and they go across town and they start a new church. Most of the church planting in America are just mad carnal Christians. I'm going to ask you a serious question. Do you really think that's what God intended? Really? Do you really think, does that really match what we're reading in Romans chapter 15? Listen, I'm all for sending people out of here with joy to start new works, but let's send them where there isn't one without them going there. How about that? Let's do that. How did Paul come to this crazy conclusion? Well, he came to the conclusion the same way you and I should come to any conclusion. He was reading the Bible. Verse 21, but as it is written, and he quotes Isaiah 52 and verse 15. So Paul's just reading the Bible, and the Lord's like, boom, hey, by the way, Paul, you should probably go where nobody knows. And he's like, wow, the Lord just showed me through the scriptures what I should do. How does God show you today what you should do? Through the scriptures. What is the very next verse after Isaiah 52, 15? Well, it's Isaiah 53, verse number one. If you've been in church any length of time, especially this one, you know that Isaiah 53 is the premier passage of the Old Testament that pictures Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul gets this direction and therefore... He sets his course, not where Christ is named, not to build on another man's foundation. So based on this principle that Paul is determined not to double up on another guy's ministry, you know what we can conclude? Kind of a sidebar, but it's very interesting. Paul's writing to the Romans. He's on his way to go to Rome eventually. You know what that means? That means that Peter was never in Rome. You say, so what? Really? Do you realize that there was a massive denomination that called themselves Christians that's built on the fact that Peter is the one who founded the church in Rome? You realize that? And the Bible is very clear that 
Peter was never in Rome. We'll see that again in Romans 16. But it's absolutely impossible, or Paul would not have gone there. That's crystal clear. Let me prove that to you. It's How can I be so sure? Well, I can be very sure. Acts chapter 16, here's another example, verses 6 and 7. Paul is talking about his ministry. He says, Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the regions of Galatia, and notice, were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. This is so weird. Paul just wants to go out and preach the gospel to everybody, so he's at a certain location in western Turkey, and he wants to kind of head northeast into the region called Asia, and the Spirit said, nope, can't go there. He's like, okay, let's try something else. And then he goes a little further down the coast, and he's like, hey, Bithynia, that's over here up to the northeast. And the Spirit says, yeah, you can't go there either. And immediately after that, Paul gets what we refer to as the Macedonian call, head across the sea and go into the area of Macedonia, which is kind of the region of Greece, and continue to propagate the gospel westward. Why do you suppose the Holy Spirit wouldn't allow Paul to go to those other areas? Have you ever wondered that? Well, the answer is in the Bible. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 1. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. You see that? Peter was already there. So the Holy Spirit said, wait a minute, Paul, you're not going to build on another man's foundation. You're not going to go where Christ is already named. Peter's already got Asia and Bithynia covered. Don't go there. Go where Peter is not. Peter was never in Rome. There's no need. (laughs) There was no need for Paul to have gone there if Peter was there. Listen, God needs the gospel to go to new regions. He needs people to be willing to take it to places that have no access without you bringing it there. Man, that's exciting. That's an exciting way to live your life. I have had the privilege of doing that. Let me tell you, there is no life like that life. It's not for everybody, but if it's for you, man, you can't go wrong. Let me just tell you, you're on the cutting edge. I mean, why would you want to settle for a life of retread ministry when you potentially can go out and blaze new trails? And if you yourself are not the guy going, you can get just as excited sending those guys that do. I'm telling you. That's what it's all about. So the second point is not about the what of the ministry. It's about the where of the ministry, and that is where Christ is not named. Last point, we will end quickly. The duration of the ministry. Verses 22 to 24. The duration. He says, For which cause I have been much hindered from coming to you. That doesn't sound like duration. Well, let me try and clarify what I'm trying to get at here. This section in the the last few verses, is a discussion of when or how Paul might be able to work out a visit to Rome. Uh, He he enters into a very personal dialogue, a section, and you may be wondering, okay, what's that got to do with duration? Well, here's the idea. Paul has a personal desire to visit the saints that are in Rome, right? We see that in verse number 23. And where it says that he's had this desire for many years, but it's yet to be realized. Well, why is that? I mean, 
doesn't Paul get vacation? Well, part of the reason is, is because Paul's life is consumed with ministry. I mean, everywhere he goes has to do with his ministry, right? He's busy. The work is too important to just leave it. 2 Thessalonians, verse, chapter number 1, verse number 7. Notice this verse. This is revolutionary. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. Okay, there is rest in the ministry of Christ. I'm not saying you burn the candle at both ends until you, you know, live fast, die young, leave a handsome corpse. I'm not saying that. You who are troubled, rest with us. When, Paul? Well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. That's when. The duration of the ministry? Paul has this desire to go visit the guys in Rome, but he's like, you know, I, I, got, I got a lot going on. So, eventually, he has this idea, look, I plan to go to Spain. I plan to get the gospel even further westward. And you know, on my way to Spain, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to swing by. And I'm going to stop by and hang out with you guys for a little bit. And then I'm going to keep going on to Spain. So, you know, he's going to get a little bit of R&R while he's on the way to continue to do ministry. That's the way Paul works it in. So you need to understand that the gospel ministry is more than just a job. It's your life. It's all-consuming. The gospel ministry cannot just be a hobby. It cannot just be when you have spare time or spare change. It's all your life. It's all or nothing. It's everything you live and breathe and do. It's the gospel ministry. Especially for the guy who is the pioneer church planning missionary. Now, if you are assessing this with a practical, personal, individual application for your heart and life, which I hope you are, let me ask you, does that sound extreme to you? Does that kind of a life sound like, <laughs> great sermon, don't think so. I know you're laughing because people think that. I know people think that. Does it sound like something so ridiculous? I mean, really. Okay, Jeff, you had that crazy life, whatever. We're glad you do what you do, but really, not me. I would never, I would never do something like that. Can I suggest to you, would, I would pray that God would allow some love in your heart to allow me to say this and hear it. If that is you, if that is your reaction, you're Laodicean. You know what Laodicea means? It means the rights of the people. And if in your heart and in your mind and you're doing the math about what this really means to live a life that follows Paul, and you care too much about your rights and your time and your wealth and your vacation and your recreation and your family and your pleasure, to ever consider a life like this, well, you're Laodicean. Do you know what Jesus says to the Laodiceans? Do you know how it makes Jesus' stomach churn? Yeah, read Revelation chapter 3, the end of that chapter. 
How about this? I dare you. I double dog dare you. That's the serious one. (laughs) To take all those words, your rights, your time, your wealth, your vacation, your recreation, your family, your and run those words through the scripture and see what God thinks about all that stuff. Just do that. Where are the men and women who will love God enough to say, I'm all in. Sign me up. Where are those guys? Really? I mean, the ultimate sacrifice, a living sacrifice for a cause that is greater than yourself, for ultimate freedom for all mankind in eternity, an honorable, noble way to give your life in service. Who's willing to do that? Who will say the lamb who was slain is worthy to be praised? I am willing. Send me. Because without men and women like that, Great Commission's not going anywhere, is it? It's not going anywhere. And we're just big fat failures. But truly, don't misunderstand me. Because many of you do not have the grace and the calling to do that, specifically and individually. But you absolutely have to participate, to be obedient, in other words, to give and to support and to send those that do. Do you see that? How about an amen there? That's a good spot. If we will do that together, we really make a difference in eternity. We really do. I mean, how much time we got left anyway? I mean, when's Jesus coming back anyway? Well, sooner than yesterday. I want you to seriously consider this. What would God have you to do today? Paul says, I will not dare speak of another man's ministry. What is your ministry, sir? What's your ministry, ma'am, that you'll speak of? What do you want it to be? What do you wish it was? What do you hope it to begin to be starting today and moving forward? Is there something? I mean, that's an important thing. God expects us to carry out what he commanded us to do. Some of you need to surrender your lives to be pioneering missionaries. Now that means you have to prepare yourself. That means you have to study. You need to be trained. But we can help you with that. Others of you need to sacrificially rearrange your life and finances to send and support those that do. You need to be, maybe not pioneer church planners that go, but you need to be pioneer senders. Pioneer senders. So who's in? I'll be a pioneer goer. I'll be a pioneer sender. And who's left? I'll be a Laodicean. (laughs) Let's pray together.